Good evening. It's nice to see a good group. And we've been seeing that all week. And I know it's a sacrifice. I know that you didn't invite me here because you were all bored and didn't know what to do during your evenings of the week. So I want you to know how much, and I've been thinking this every day, but I've forgotten to say it to you until now, how much I appreciate not only that you pray and that you're encouraging other people to come and that sort of thing, but that you're here. It's a sacrifice, I know. And I know that the Lord knows it. And I know that he is with us. He says, where two or three are gathered in my name, there am I in the midst. I think we have more than two or three here tonight. This is one of the things we teach the believers in Spain because before they come to know the Lord Jesus and the religious system that they are in there, they're only required to attend at the very minimum once a year is what you're required to do. Uh, they have a lot of um, things to clear out of their minds, a lot of bad habits, a lot of bad ways of thinking about God. And we teach them this verse right away. That the first person that you're coming to be with and to listen to is the Lord Jesus. A spiritually minded person appreciates the fact he perceives that Christ is present. He said, where two or three are gathered, there am I in the midst. Two or three are gathered in my name. There am I in the midst. And so we're glad he's here with us tonight. Because if he wasn't, we might as well just go home. But he's here. I've really been enjoying the music. I didn't know whether to say after that last one. I'm enjoying it all, but after that last one, I didn't know whether to say amen or ole. <laughs> I think maybe I should just switch and preach in Spanish in honor of that song what do you think how many people here understand spanish tonight let's turn the tables on them <laughs> okay we'll we'll stick to english then all right let's go right to acts chapter 16 because this is what we came to learn from the word of god acts chapter 16 we left some people in jail last night and we have to get them out tonight. <laughs> Acts chapter 16, we're going to begin reading. I think what we'll do is begin with verse 23 just to pick up the thought again and we'll go forward from there. Acts 16:23, and we're going to read right through to the end of the chapter. The word of the Lord says, And when they had laid many stripes upon them, they cast them into prison charging the jailer to keep them safely, who, having received such a charge, thrust them into the inner prison and made their feet fast in the stocks. And at midnight, Paul and Silas prayed and sang praises unto God. And the prisoners heard them. And suddenly there was a great earthquake, so that the foundations of the prison were shaken And immediately all the doors were opened and everyone's bands were loosed. And the keeper of the prison, awaking out of his sleep and seeing the prison doors open, he drew out his sword and would have killed himself, supposing that the prisoners had fled. But Paul cried with a loud voice, saying, Do thyself no harm, for we are all here. Then he called for a light and sprang in. 
and came trembling and fell down before Paul and Silas and brought them out and said, Sirs, what must I do to be saved? And they said, Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and thou shalt be saved and thy house. And they spake unto him the word of the Lord and to all that were in his house. And he took them the same hour of the night and washed their stripes and was baptized. He and all his household, he and all his straightway. And when he had brought them into his house, he set meat before them and rejoiced, believing God with all his house. And when it was day, the magistrates sent the sergeant, saying, Let those men go. And the keeper of the prison told this, saying to Paul, The magistrates have sent to let you go. Therefore now depart and go in peace. But Paul said unto them, They have beaten us openly uncondemned, being Romans, and have cast us into prison, and now do they thrust us out privately? No, verily, but let them come themselves and fetch us out. And the sergeants told these words unto the magistrates. And they feared when they heard that they were Romans. And they came and besought them and brought them out and desired them to depart out of the city. And they went out of the prison and entered into the house of Lydia. And when they had seen the brethren, they comforted them and departed. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, once again we bow in the name of the Lord Jesus, for we have come and gathered in his name. We have come and gathered to learn from the word of God. And so we pray that we might be able to hear thy voice speaking to us tonight through the scriptures. We are only branches. You are the vine. We give you as we have each time we have met together, that complete liberty to speak to us, to touch us, to redirect us, to make plain to us things in our lives that need to change, to show us the way in which you want us to walk, to save those who are lost, to forgive the sins of those who are unforgiven, if they will turn to you. We ask this because we want you to make your presence known to us tonight. We didn't come to meet with one another. We came to meet with you, Lord. Stay with us. Speak to us. Move and touch our lives. Don't just let us have a meeting on the calendar. Let this be a red-letter night in the annals of the kingdom of God. For we pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. Recently, traveling through southern Spain, uh, I drove by a field that was strewn, littered with crepe paper banners, plastic flags, paper drink cups with plastic tops speared by plastic straws, all kinds of wrapping paper littered over this entire piece of ground. And one of my children said, oh, look, that's where the fair was. And I said, 
Yes, and looked closer because that's all it left behind. That's all it left behind. The circus, the fair. That's all it leaves behind. It makes no impact on the town it visits. You pay your money, you get on the ride, you go around a few times, you get off dizzier and poorer. (laughs) You're the same person you were before. You have the same problems you had before. A lot of things in life are that way. You may have your favorite football team. You may have your favorite basketball team. But I'll tell you one thing. It doesn't matter if they win or lose. It changes nothing about life except the bank accounts of those who are playing. Did the gospel have impact in Philippi? We've been reading about it, haven't we? You've been seeing it as we go through this chapter. When they came there, although the beginning was slow, and it seemed at the first step that that no one hardly knew they were there. And yet, slowly but surely, here's a woman named Lydia and all of her household, and they're saved. And those women who are out meeting by the river praying, they knew that the gospel had arrived. And then we found that servant girl, a woman, a young woman whose life was enslaved to occultism, who listened to voices and felt vibrations, and who was a slave of a power that spoke to her and told her where petty things like lost purses and leather jackets were so that, so that her masters might take in the money and make a living off of this poor, exploited, enslaved creature. And how in a moment's time, face to face, With a servant of Christ, she found liberty in the name that she probably had never heard before. Because she said these men are the servants of the Most High God. And when she said that, dear friends, I think she said everything she knew how to say about God. And Paul, he's turned to her and he didn't say to that evil spirit that held her captive. He didn't say, I say to you, I command you in the name of the Most High God. He didn't say that, did he? He said, I command you in the name of Jesus Christ. Because Jesus Christ is the most high God, you see. It's very clear. She knew. He says he came out immediately. He didn't say he would think about it. He didn't have to be threatened. He was commanded in the name of Jesus Christ to come out. He had to do it. An impact in her life. That's two that are named. We don't know about the others that are not named, but we know about these two. And the first two are women completely different in character and lifestyle. And yet God spoke to both of them and freed them. And then we move along. And last night we were looking at how the enemy of our souls fights back. And we said like that dear brother used to say, well, you have to say something good about everybody. I'll say this for the devil. He's always on the job. How difficult it is for him to be discouraged. And how easy for many of us to be discouraged. We throw in the towel. We quit and go off whining and limping at the least little thing sometimes. But the the life of these men who went to Philippi in the service of Jesus Christ was not a life of people who were going to quit at the first sign of trouble. And so they were thrown into prison. They were beaten. They were mistreated, insulted, falsely accused, 
and beaten and then thrown into the prison. And not only into the prison, but into the inner prison, it says, which means the dungeon, that dark and nasty place, which never saw the light of day, full of vermin and other things that we won't mention. And as if that were not enough, put their feet in the stocks and leave them there. And you can just hear him say, as he slams the door, we say in Spanish, yeah, And that's where you're going to stay. Because it says here uh, in verse 23 at the end, charging the jailer to keep them safely, who having received such a charge, it doesn't say he led them into the prison. It says he thrust them into the prison. And the idea is he got them by the scruff of the neck. He threw them in there and he kicked them in on the way. He fixed their feet in the stocks, and there they stayed. You can just imagine what names he called them. But he finds another vocabulary tonight, doesn't he? When he speaks to them. They're not any longer rascals or scoundrels. Because someone else found out that the gospel had come to Philippi that night. See how the, the impact of the gospel is reaching Every corner of the city of Philippi until the people in the prison, the inner prison and the outer prison, the jailhouse and the dungeon, and the jailer who lived above them, even all of those know what is happening. I think it's wonderful. Because these men got an answer to prayer. This is the second time in the book of Acts that God answered prayer with an earthquake. It happened in chapter 4. When they had prayed, the place in which they were gathered was shaken. And here it says, at midnight, who knows how long they had been in. At least we know that they, if they were taken to the marketplace, people weren't in the marketplace at night. They didn't have electric lighting in those days. They were in the marketplace. It was afternoon, early or late or whatever it might have been, probably late afternoon taken and thrown into the jail. They were not treated, and they were left there. I don't know if anyone here has ever had a beating like they had. And then, on top of it, to be placed in such unsanitary and unfavorable conditions. They prayed and sang. They didn't try to pass notes out the window or to the guard to take outside to say go get us a lawyer they had a lawyer they had a lawyer see the new testament says we have a lawyer we have an advocate is the word it uses i told someone that one time when they were behaving threateningly i said you should think twice before you continue this course of action because I have retained a lawyer. <laughs> that was the end of it. I think I didn't have to explain to them what I meant by that, but it was every word of it was true. I have retained a lawyer. <laughs> and he never lost a case. They prayed, you see. They talked to their lawyer. But they didn't pray in a complaining, criticizing, and vengeful spirit. Because I'll tell you this, if you do it that way, you can't sing. 
you can't sing. It says they prayed and sang praises to God. They weren't singing the jailhouse blues. They were singing praises to God. Any old dead fish can float downstream. But if you go against the current, you've got to have life. See, And that's what they had. And there they are. And I don't know, in Spain we say when someone sings poorly, they're off key or they can't carry a tune in a bucket. We, uh, we say, those are English expressions. The Spanish expression is, when he sings it begins to rain. That's what they say. They say, Brother so-and-so is going to sing now. Bring your raincoat or bring your umbrella. That means, or plug your ears. Or That's what it means. Well, I don't know if singing causes rain, but I know that there was a case in the Bible when singing caused an earthquake. Praying and singing caused an earthquake, and here it is. Caused it in what sense? Not the vibrations. We're not talking about natural causes. We're talking about God being pleased in heaven to answer the prayers and the praise of people who trusted only in Him. If God failed them, they were lost. If God failed them, they were stuck in that jail, and the book of Acts ends right here in chapter 16. And that's it. No more. God doesn't fail. You trust in God, you don't need a second parachute. You don't need a plan B because he doesn't fail. He who comes to me, the Lord Jesus said, I will in no wise turn away or cast out. He doesn't do that. He has never failed. Jesus Christ has never failed a single person who has trusted in him. And suddenly there was a great earthquake, not a point two or point three, a great earthquake. I don't have to explain it. I lived in the Bay Area for six years. I lived here long enough to live through a few of them. I missed the big ones. We got the chandelier shakers and the plate rattlers and all that sort of stuff. But this was a big one. So big. It says the foundations of the prison were shaken. Immediately, all the doors were opened. You see, because they have the inner door to the dungeon. You have the outer door to the street. You have the doors of the cells in the, in the outer jail area, the, the individual cells. And however many doors, it doesn't list them all. But it says they were all open, however many there were. Because the gospel does that. It opens doors. It says prisoners free. And God is in one sense illustrating through what happened in that jailhouse what he can do for people and in the lives of people who trust in him. A place that you can't get out of. A situation in your life that you can't escape from. A problem that you cannot free yourself from. And it only takes God a moment of time. You don't have to go to therapy. It only takes him a moment of time. To cure that problem if you trust in him. A great earthquake. The foundations of the house were shaken immediately. The doors were open. And we say in Spanish, de postre, for dessert, everyone's bands are loose. All the shackles, everything that was holding people, whether it was their hands or their feet, whatever it was, it was all shaken loose. Shaken loose? Well, it doesn't say it was shaken loose, does it? It said the earthquake shook the prison. 
But I can't see how the shaking of the prison would open the, the shackles. You see, I think that was something else that did that. The same God that shook the ground in the prison caused in a way that in the movies they can only do with special effects. All the handcuffs and shackles to come off immediately. He did it. Why did he do it that way? Why didn't he just set free Paul and Silas? God is speaking to the rest of the prisoners, isn't he? Now, here we only have, and this is what concerns us tonight, we have the conversion of the jailer and of his household. But I can't help but think, this is one of those questions we'll have to ask when we get to heaven. I have a list of them. I don't know if it'll be erased the minute I go to heaven or not. I have a list of questions, people I want to talk to, and questions I want to ask. And this is one of them. Did anyone else get saved that night? Any of those people in that prison that never before heard the gospel because they were in jail when Paul was out preaching in the street. But the Lord made sure that the gospel got into the darkest corner of the city of Philippi. There was no place in that city where it did not reach. I'd like to know. Now we're going to learn something about Paul here as we look at this. And about the jailer. This is the circumstance, God's answer to their prayer and praise. This shaking of the jail, the the loosing of the chains and the bonds. But now look how people begin to react. You come to verse 27. And the keeper of the prison, awaking out of his sleep, seeing the prison doors open, he drew out his sword and would have killed himself, supposing that the prisoners had fled. Did you ever ask yourself why? Was that just a mad act of desperation? Well, if you know anything about Roman law, you know that Roman law declared that the one who was in charge of prisoners, if a prisoner escaped, then the jailer, the prison keeper, would have to suffer the sentence of the prisoner who had escaped. That was the way Roman law put it. And you can find this if you want to go and investigate. But this is what it said. I'll save you the trouble. We don't know how many people he had in that jail. We don't know what they were guilty of. How many of them had the death penalty on them? How many of them had a life sentence? How, what, how many of them were going to have to pay a huge monetary fine or bribe to get out of there? We don't know what it was. But immediately he looked and he thought, they've all gone. He saw the doors open and he thought only a fool would stay inside a jail with all the doors open. And he assumed, this is what it means when it says this, he supposed that the prisoners had fled. And so he did a quick calculation, knowing full well as a jailer in the Roman Empire what would be waiting for him. And he remembered that last charge who said, they said, charging the jailer to keep them safely, those two men, who having received such a charge, it means he was so impressed by what they said to him. These are dangerous men. Keep them safe. Do not let them escape. And they strictly and severely charged him about this in such a way that he took them and he threw them headlong into the inner prison, fixed their feet in the stocks, and slammed the door and locked it and went out and locked the door. And the only thing that was left to do would be like in the cartoons, swallow the key. That was the only thing that was left. He had them as secure as he could. And he was just thinking, they didn't want these to escape. What in the world is going to happen to me? 
I'm in trouble. When that jailer went to bed that night, he had no idea what was going to happen at midnight. Was he asleep already? Did he come running out in his pajamas or bathrobe or house coat? He came running out in a state of shock. I know that. It says that he had been sleeping. Verse 27. The keeper of the prison awaking out of his sleep. Yes, he was asleep. But now there's something else I want you to see in this. I want us to think about this tonight. He was sleeping beside or above or both. Two of the greatest messengers of the gospel. The very men who were causing such an impact in the city of Philippi. And he was sleeping above them in complete ignorance. He had not been in the marketplace. He'd been in the jailhouse. He didn't know what transpired there unless someone told him. He hadn't been at the riverside with the, where the women met for prayer. What did he know about these men? Well, he probably knew what he had heard by rumor, by hearsay. But I think I'm safe in saying tonight that he hadn't had a personal conversation with him. He didn't really know what it was all about. And so when it says that as a result of the earthquake, he woke up out of his sleep, I think about that. I think about people, maybe some even here tonight, who are like the jailer. You are spiritually asleep. You don't know what the score is. You don't know what the movie's about. You went to sleep. You're missing it. You're sleeping your way through life. Headed for you don't know what, but I do. Because I can tell the future. Did you know that? No, I don't have tea leaves or a crystal ball. But I have a book, a very old book that tells people's future. It tells their past, it tells their present, and it tells their future. And it never fails. And it never fails. Oh, but they don't have time to read it. They're too busy. They're too tired. They're too distracted. They're too much in love. They're too much in debt. They're too whatever it might be. Until suddenly an earthquake comes to your life. I'm not talking about an earthquake like this. I'm talking about an earthquake, something, a tragedy. Some cataclysm, some emergency, some unforeseen by you difficulty, problem comes into your life. Boom! It's there. And now what? You are wide awake. <gasps> Why is this happening to me? What's happening? And you don't have any answers. Some people are like the Philippian jailer. They are. They only wake up at an earthquake. God will have to rattle your cage before you'll wake up. 
Now, if you want him to do that, he can. But take it under advice that that is not the best way to proceed. This I'll say for him, at least he woke up. The Old Testament, the prophet Jonah, disobeying God, went down into the ship and went to sleep. And the ship was in a storm and it was going up and down the waves and the storm and the, and the sailors and the word used for sailor there in the Hebrew is a word that literally, its root word comes from the word salt. And the idea is this, they're the old salts. These are the veteran sailors who have seen everything the Mediterranean can throw at them. And they are so frightened, they are screaming. It didn't say they yelled, it said they screamed. Ah! They were just terrified by what was happening. They were throwing the boxes or bales or bottles or jars or whatever they had, throwing the cargo over. And crying out to their gods, what's happening? And Jonah's down in the inside in the hold of the ship, the guilty party, sound asleep. And what does it say happened? The captain of the ship went down and he shook him and he said, Wake up, sleeper! And cry unto your God, he said. And God shook the jailer and he said, Wake up, jailer. Wake up. And God is saying to someone here tonight, Time to wake up. This is the wake-up call. He wakes up. Verse 27. His eyes are open. He sees the problem all around him. He immediately reaches the conclusion that his own life, not only his job, but his life, everything is in danger. And in utter despair, it says, he drew out his sword. He was going to kill himself. Now, in society in that day and time, you know, things work in circles. We think we're so far removed from, from the classics, from the Greeks and the Romans, from that time of the world. This is so different because now we have wireless networking and drive-in restaurants. And we think we're so different. The Romans allowed for suicide. They called it self-murder. They spoke plainer than we do. See, we're more clever. We say euthanasia. We use euphemisms. Nice words to cover up bad words, ugly words. They say the same thing. He was going to commit suicide. There were Roman philosophers and Greek philosophers who committed suicide. Seneca advocated it. We know these things. But this we know from the scriptures. God does not advocate it. And I'm going to say more about that in just a moment. He does not only does not advocate it. It is great evil. It's the final sin in the downward pathway of foolish, discouraged, disoriented people that gives no hope but only heaps upon them one last offense before they are thrust out into eternity. I'm speaking plainly. And I can speak plainly only when I'm sure of the ground I stand on. 
And you have it right here in front of you. Look at it with me. He says, it says in verse 27, he drew out his sword and would have killed himself. We know his intention. You say, well, how do they know his intention? Well, remember, Paul and Silas spent the evening with him later in his home. They knew what his intentions were because he explained it all. He would have killed himself. But even if he hadn't said it, it was obvious. He didn't pull out his sword to shave. He pulled out his sword. What was he going to do with it? Supposing that the prisoners had fled and he was probably saying, Woe is me, or something like that. But there was another voice. Verse 28 begins with the word, But. It's a word that's contrast. Whenever you see the word, But, think, Now, what follows is going to be the opposite of what we heard or knew before. There was a brother who used to tell us many years ago, when you hear someone say, talk to you about another person, and they say, I really love uh, sister so-and-so, but he said, when they say that, when you hear the but, forget everything that went before it. Because now that was just the... I'm thinking in in Spanish, I was going to say the guinda or the adorno. That's the, yeah, the window dressing. Now you're going to find out, he said, what they really think about sister so-and-so. Because but is a contrast. But we try to soften it up. You know, we throw in a few nice things first. And then we put the but and then we go for the juggler vein. But here the but is a happy contrast because on the first side of it, we have a man who's about to kill himself. He's in desperation. He can't see any way out. He's going to lose his job. He's going to be made a public disgrace of. He's going to be sent to court. He's going to be tried. He's going to be faced with the sentence of all of these people that he thinks are escaping. And that sentence is going to be applied to him. And if he doesn't lose his life, he's going to wish he had. So to him, the honorable way out In this case, the only avenue left to him in his desperation and not being able to see another solution to his problem, and that's one of the main reasons why people contemplate suicide, because they cannot see another solution to their problem. See? But Paul cried with a loud voice. You see, they were close to one another, the house of the jailer was within sight of the jail. And so he could see what the jailer was contemplating. He could hear what the jailer was saying. And the jailer could hear him. But just to make sure, Paul opened his mouth. And if anyone else in that prison but Paul or Silas had opened his mouth, what would they have said? Do it, you lousy. You, you know what they would have said. Here is a man who has been mistreated more than any other man in that prison except his companion, Silas. Are you with me? He has no bitterness. He has no vengeful spirit. He's not looking for a payback. He says, don't do yourself any harm. But he says it with a loud voice. He wants to make sure... He heard him. He doesn't say, oh, I hope he doesn't harm himself, but don't say it too loud. And then when he kills himself, say, oh, I was just saying I hoped he didn't do that. And that way you look good, you see. He said it loud enough for the man to hear him. He cried with a loud voice. 
Do yourself no harm. I'm going to tell you something here tonight. That's what everybody who doesn't know Jesus Christ as their Lord and Savior does. That's what every sinner does all his life, all her life. All you do is do yourself harm. Sin, sin, sin. If you only sinned one time a day, 365 sins a year. If you're 10 years old, that's 3,650 sins. If you're 20 years old, if you're 30 years old, you with me? I see some figures there running through eyeballs. Some people are calculating. Oh, that's if you're being good. That's if you're being good. That's if you only sin one time a day. And if you do that, you'd be called a saint, probably. If you only had... I'm not talking about if you only rob one bank a day. Because remember, sin is not just robbing the bank. Sin is not just committing some immoral act. Sin is when we think something that is wrong. Sin is in the thoughts. Huh? Does it say that? Let the wicked, Isaiah 55, 3, doesn't it say that? 55, 7. Let the wicked forsake his way and the unrighteous man his thoughts. And let him turn unto me. The thoughts. Sins of thought. Do you believe there's a such thing as a sin of attitude? That you don't even have to have a thought. It can be. <laughs> I remember one time we have a videotape of some of the old Dick Van Dyke programs. And you know how they, the office crew that used to work with him. And uh, the boss would come in and the fellow named Buddy, the short fellow named Buddy, would always insult the boss. And they had this thing going in the office there one time where they had a coffee can. And anytime anybody... Um, said a word they shouldn't say they had to put a quarter in the coffee can and so the boss walked in and Buddy says uh, Dick how much would it cost me to call him uh, and then he let out some long thing and he said oh about a dollar twenty five he got out the money and plinked it all in there and said it and then he, the boss turned around and just looked at him and he put several coins in there and he didn't say anything and he said that's for what I was thinking and walked out <laughs> You ever thought about what what your thoughts cost? What your attitudes cost? Oh, but sin? You don't even have to do a bad thing in your thoughts or have a bad attitude. Sin can simply be what the book of James says. To him who knows to do good and does not do it, it is sin. To fail to do all the good that you should do is also sin. You see? So, like I said, if you only sinned once a day, you would be really something else. Like that parrot said, you're something else. <laughs> but I'm afraid you sin more than once a day. Every idle word that men shall speak, they shall give account of it in the day of judgment, the Lord Jesus said. For our thoughts, for our attitudes, for our words, for our deeds... For our failures to do what we should have done. And for all the things we did that looked right to others, but in our hearts the attitude and the motive was not right. We are such sinful creatures. Do thyself no harm. Every day you go without trusting Jesus Christ to forgive you of your sin 
and to give you a new life. Every day that you go, you heap unto yourself more sins for which you will have to give account in the day of judgment. You're doing yourself harm. Don't say, I'll take my chances. Because the law of probability doesn't figure here. You have a 0% chance. Or like we say in the South, you have a snowball's chance in hell. There's no chance. There's no probability here. God will bring every sin into judgment. And that's all that sinners do. That's all that we know how to do ourselves by human nature. The natural person. The person who is not born again. Born of God. Doesn't have a second birth. Doesn't have a savior. Doesn't have forgiveness. That's all they can do is do themselves harm. But Paul says to the jailer, do thyself no harm. And this word he uses that we have here as harm is actually the Greek word kakos, which means evil. It doesn't mean uh, injury. It doesn't mean to cause pain. It means to do evil. That's what the word is here. Don't do anything evil to yourself. And if he had taken that sword and plunged it in, that act of suicide would have been his last evil deed before he left this life and plunged himself into eternity. Do thyself no evil, he says. And this is what all believers should be saying to the unbelieving. Don't wish for them to find judgment. Don't wish vengeance upon them. They are of all people most pitiful because they're harming themselves and every day they spend out of a relationship with a loving God who is willing right now tonight to forgive all sin and to give a new life. Every day you spend outside of that, you're only doing yourself more harm. How pathetic. Paul says, don't do yourself any harm. Don't you know that touched him? He said, for we are all here. Don't you know that touched him? The same God that opened the doors and made it possible for them to escape restrained their feet. He took the shackles off, but it was actually, I believe, the power of God that held them all there, that, that refused to allow those men to give in to the impulse to run. They were all there. The apostle says, we're all here. Open your eyes and look, man. We're all here. So he has to do it, doesn't he? It says in verse 29, he called for a light. It's hard to see in the dark. Up until then, he's taking Paul's word for it. A voice comes out of the dark. We're all here. Let's see if it's true. He calls for a light. If you have never come to personal faith in the Lord Jesus Christ, I see two things you need to do here. The first one is you need to wake up. And tonight is the night. And the second thing is you need to call for a light. See, you need to say, Lord, open my eyes. God, help me to see. Like we were saying last night, those little children taught to pray. Lord, teach me that I am the sinner that Jesus died for on the cross. Call for a light, man. Call for a light, woman. Ask God to help you. Pray. Say, could we have some light? Could I have understanding? Open my eyes that I may see. called for a light. 
but not just to stand outside and look, peer in. It says he sprang in. He used the light to go right in. He sprang in. There was energy in his step. I doubt if there ever was anybody else who leaped into a prison before in their life, but he certainly did, and came trembling and fell down before Paul and Silas. Now, wait a minute. Where are Paul and Silas? Where are they? They're in the dungeon. They're in the inner prison. They're in that nasty part down there. And he comes all the way in with a light. He goes all the way down, and he falls down before them. He didn't bring them out before he did this. Why did he fall down before them? He's humbled. He's frightened. He's repentant. He's embarrassed by the situation that he had left such good men in who had no evil desire in their hearts toward him at all. He was broken by perhaps the prayers and the praises and now the earthquake and the pardoning spirit of these men who were unwilling to seek vengeance. And the love, the gospel love of Paul and Silas penetrated that Philippian jailer's tough hide that night. And he fell down. It doesn't mean he tripped and fell. It means he prostrated himself. He knelt down. He bowed down. He humbled himself before them. Not that he thought they were God, but he was showing his changed attitude. Now, I want to tell you something. Your mother might have given you a good upbringing. But before God saves you, he'll give you a good downbringing. He will. You know, the old preacher Alfred Gibbs, who used to tell the story about Alice in Wonderland. If you listen to him tell him, you'd think he is really off his rocker. What is, he's forgotten what he's preaching about. He talked about Alice and how she fell, chased the rabbit and fell into the hole. And down at the bottom of the hole, the rabbit scampered out saying he was late awfully terribly late and he scampered through the hole and she knelt down and peered through the hole and she could see this wonderful world in there but she was too big to get through the door to go in to follow him he said fortunately the uh, author had foreseen that problem and had made provision for it because there by the door on her side of it was a little table with a little uh, glass or vial on it, and it said two words, drink me. And being the obedient little girl that she was, she picked it up and drank it. And when she did, what happened? Ah, you can't just live off a Spider-Man. Come on, you people are supposed to know something about this kind of thing. What, What happened to Alice when she drank it? Down she went, down she went, down she went. And pretty soon, she was small enough to go through the door. And she went in and found this wonderful world, this wonderfully ridiculous world in there. Well, do you see, that's the way we are. We're running through life, following something that's none of our business. They can't lead us anywhere. And we trip and fall into a hole. And we look through a little door, and we see a wonderful world. We see people who are smiling. We see marriages that are united. We see families that are happy. We see people 
who, who pray and who seem at peace when we are at turmoil. We see all these wonderful things. And sometimes we, if we are really honest with ourselves, we say, I wish I had what they have. Oh, but we would never say that in front of them because we're good pretenders and we don't want to let on that things are not okay. See. So we look in. And we try to go in. We can't. Why not? We're too big. Too big. And God has made provision for that. For our self-importance. For our self-esteem. For our self-image. God has made provision. He left a book on the table. And it says two words. Read me. And when you begin to read the book. Guess what begins to happen? (laughs) Down you go. It takes you down just to the right size. Except you become as little children. You cannot enter into the kingdom of God. You see? The jailer was being taken down. And don't say when trials and difficulties come into your life, my dear friend tonight who doesn't know Christ, don't say that God is being mean to you. God is being kind to you. He's taking you down. He's getting you small enough so that you can enter the kingdom. He's getting you down to the size of a person who needs to be saved, a person who needs to be forgiven, a person who can't do it all himself or herself. So he sprang in. He called for a light. He came trembling, it says. He was moved by it. He was shaking like a leaf. And he fell down before them. And then he asked the question. But first he brought them out. He didn't ask them the question down there in the dungeon. It says he brought them out. Did you catch that? The next verse, 30. He brought them out and said. That's out, we presume, out into the outer prison. Out of the dungeon. And he said, sirs. Not you scoundrels or rascals. Now he spoke nice to them. Now he was polite, courteous, respectful. Sirs. Now I'll tell you if the Lord goes to work on you. If you begin to see yourself for what you are in the light of the word of God. And that you need a savior and that you need help. It will change the way you talk to people. It will change your vocabulary. It will change the way you speak to others. You see, and he says, sirs, he's sensitive now. He realizes he's done them a great wrong. What must I do to be saved? What a question. I'm glad. I am so glad that Paul and Silas were there that night to hear that question. I I tremble to think what kind of an answer they would have gotten from other people if they had been asked this question. But it was asked to Paul and Silas. And when he asked the question, he admitted, didn't he? He admitted something, didn't he? Just like the rich young ruler. When the rich young ruler came and fell down before the Lord with all of his riches, with all of his power and political clout, with all of his friends, with all of his popularity, when he came and fell down before Christ and said, Good Master, what may I do? that I might inherit eternal life, what did he confess? That he didn't have it. That he didn't have it. 
What did this man confess? He had a nice job. Well, maybe not what you would like to do. But he had a regular job. It was a respectful job in the Roman Empire. He was a functioning piece of the Roman machinery, the Philippian jailer. Paid with certain prestige in the city for the place he occupied. He had a house. He had a family. But there was something he didn't have. And you might have a house. And you might have a good job. And you might have a family. But there's something you don't have. And remember, we said it last night. What will it profit a man if he gained the whole world and lose his own soul? He said, what must I do to be saved? Thirty seconds ago, he had his sword out and he was about to plunge it in and end it all. And now he's shaken like a leaf. He is polite and he is concerned about his salvation. I told you saved is a good word. Now don't listen to what Hollywood does to it. I am sick and tired of the Hollywood caricatures of Bible-believing Christians. I am. And they, they, they show a bunch of flaming idiots out beside some rock in the countryside that says Jesus saved and they're, they're doing something they shouldn't be doing or, or mistreating people because of the color of their skin or because of their political ideas or whatever it might be. Those are not believers. They're believers in something, but they're not believers in Jesus Christ. Saved is the opposite of lost. Lost. Saved is the opposite of perishing. You know what it means to perish? P-E-R. I-S-H. To pass eternally ruined into Satan's habitation. Perish. Perish. To be saved. To be delivered. To be rescued. He needed to be rescued and he recognized it. What must I do to be saved? Is there someone here tonight that could answer that question? Is there someone here tonight who couldn't answer that question? What would happen if the question were put to you? What if someone came to you and said, what do I have to do to be saved? What if you had two minutes to tell them? What if you couldn't say, like people say sometimes when I ask them this question, they say, oh, I would call my pastor, or I would call one of the elders, or I would ask them to come to the meeting on Sunday. What if you only have two minutes, I say? What would you tell them? They just got run over by a truck. They're bleeding to death. They're dying on the highway. They have two minutes to live. What are you going to tell them? I know that's kind of a gross illustration, but the point is same what's the answer if you're not saved if you're not absolutely certain of it then you can't tell another person clearly and if you can't tell them clearly 
is you couldn't give a simple and clear answer to that problem, to that question tonight, then before you go out those doors, you need to make sure you know the answer for your own life. You do. Wake up. Call for a light. They said, here comes the answer. But first, before I tell it to you, suppose it had been a Roman priest. I don't have any quarrel with the Roman Catholic people. I really don't. Never have. Our quarrel is with the system that maintains them in the grips of the sacraments, in the magisterium of the church, and does not allow them to read and believe the Bible and accept the simple gospel in the way it was accepted in the New Testament. Our problem is not with the Catholic people. We love the Catholic people. And I can say that. God is my witness. But the priests, oh, well, you have to be baptized as an infant to take away original sin. And if you weren't baptized as an infant, then you have to go through through the adult ritual of initiation into the church. Then you'll have to uh, go to catechism. You'll have to learn... You'll have to be educated by the church. You'll have to go to confession. You'll have to take First Communion. And then you'll have to keep renewing this. You'll have to keep living the best possible life, not committing any sin, and stay faithful in the... What's the word they use? To be a faithful member of the church all of your life. And if you do all of that, Then when you die, you will go to be judged by God who will weigh your good works against your bad works and you might go directly to heaven and and if not, you'll go to purgatory first for who knows how long. I think if they had said that to the Philippian jailer that night, he would have pulled his sword out again and plunged it in. (laughs) Oh, some others come along. Suppose it wasn't Paul... And um, Silas, suppose it was Miss White. She would have said, don't eat any red meat because that inflames the passions. And you must never remember the Lord or, or have Christian services on the day of Sunday because that's the mark of the beast. And everyone is condemned who meets on that day. And you must do good works. Because if you fail to do them, you can lose your salvation. What must you do to be saved? I'm glad you asked that question. You must do a lot. And you must do it all your life, would say the priest. Would say the others. So many things you must do. Do, 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 do this. Do that. Christianity is a religion of a thing that has been done. Done. When the Lord Jesus died on the cross, he didn't say, I did my part. He said, it is finished. You know what that means? You don't have to be a college graduate to know what the word finished is. How many people here watch a movie? What does it mean when it gets to the last frame of the movie and it says those six letters? T-H-E-E-N-D. What does that mean? Come on. It's finished. This is what it means. Jesus Christ did it all. 
He paid completely the debts for your sins. He took the punishment for your sins. You didn't even know him. And if you're not a believer tonight here among us, you're very welcome and you always will be. But we'd rather welcome you like the like they sang through the Father's house than just to hear. We'd like to know you're going to the Father's house with us. You see. But you're gonna have to trust him. You're gonna have to trust him. He did everything there is to be done, you see. You have to trust him that he did it for you. We have a chorus we sing. I owed a debt I could not pay. He paid a debt he did not owe. This is it. They said, Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and thou shalt be saved. No long process. Nothing to do all your life and hope that at the end it all works out. They said, To him, Mr. Philippian Jailer, before you put your head back on your pillow for the second time tonight, you can know you're saved. And I say to you tonight that before you go home and put your head on your pillow tonight, you can know that you are saved. You can know that all of your sins are forgiven. I mean all of them, not the installment plan. All of your sins are forgiven. That you are no longer, as he says in the book of Ephesians, strangers or sojourners or pilgrims, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God. See, believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and thou shalt be saved. And thy house. What does he mean by that? And your household. It means, and the same thing applies to your household. He doesn't mean to say, you believe and your household will be saved. You can't believe for your wife or your husband or your children or your mother or your father or your aunts or your uncles. It's, he's saying, you believe in the Lord Jesus Christ and you'll be saved. And the same thing applies to them and your household. The same goes for them. The Lord loves to save households. He does. And that is why they said that. Now, I want you to think in simple terms with me about verse 32 because it's a forgotten verse. It's a forgotten verse. You see, the gospel stated in its simplest terms, in its nutshell version, is verse 31. Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and thou shalt be saved. But it says in verse 32, And they spoke unto him the word of the Lord and to all that were in his house. What does that mean? Yeah. It's not just saying, I believe in the Lord Jesus Christ. Listen, every Catholic who goes to Mass says they believe that Christ died for their sins according to the Scriptures. They all say it. They all believe Christ died for our sins. They don't have the foggiest idea what it means. And many Protestants and evangelicals. One woman stood in the, sat in the office of a friend of mine and he asked her what would happen if she were to die today, if she would go to heaven. And she said, yes. And he said, how do you know that? And she said, because Christ died for my sins. Now, he didn't say, praise the Lord, sister. He was clever. He said, what does that mean? Christ died for our sins. 
Christ died for me. What, what do those words mean? Can you explain that to me? And she looked at him and she said, oh, I don't know. That's what they told me in church. Isn't that good enough? Remember what we said the other night about the parrot? He learned the words. Is your faith in God more than vocabulary? Does it have content? Do you know what it means? Has, have you let someone explain it to you? They explained it to them. They spoke unto them the word of the Lord. Why does God send messengers? Why does he have gospel preachers? Well, it tells us in the, in the book of Romans very clearly, doesn't it? In Romans chapter 10, we'll just come and read in Romans chapter 10 for a moment, where he, he speaks about this. He says in verse 13, Whosoever shall call upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. How then shall they call on him whom they have not believed? And how shall they believe in him of whom they have not heard? And how shall they hear without a preacher? You don't learn about Jesus Christ by going up on the, on the mountain peaks of the Rocky Mountains and, and smoking pot and looking at meteor showers. And then come down and write Rocky Mountain High and say, I was born again. Born again is not a term to be used about a person who's down to 20% in the polls politically and comes up to 50. The devil loves to take Bible words and Bible terms and twist them around and stretch them out of shape and give them uses that have nothing to do with their Bible meaning. Explained it to him. What do the words mean? What does it mean Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures? If you don't know that tonight, we want to explain it to you. I'll tell you what I would do if I were you. I wouldn't sit there and wait for me to finish this message. I would get up right now and come sit right down here at the front and knowing that one of the brothers in the church here, would come and sit with me and help me right now. I wouldn't wait any longer. I wouldn't wait for the earthquake. I would take the advice. I would, If I had to, I would stand up right where I was and say, someone help me. I want to know what this means. I don't want to wait. I'm not going home. I am not giving sleep to my eyes tonight until I have this problem solved once for all. How people can lose sleep over their financial portfolio and never lose sleep over their soul, I will never understand. They explained it. They spoke unto them the word of the Lord. They explained what it means because this, is, this man is not a Jew. This man had not heard the preaching of the gospel, even as a Gentile. And so they explained it. They brought him up to speed. They told him about Christ and why he came and what he did on the cross and what it means. Why Christ had to die for our sins. What it means that we are sinners. And the penalty for sin that God declares is death. It can only be solved by one who is infinite taking our place and suffering in one death. The value of his infinite person. A death of infinite value for all people. And the value of that death applied to each and every person who trusts in him. See, the, the Jews came to the Lord Jesus and they said, Good Master, what must we do that we might work the works of God? And he said, This is the work of God, that you might believe on him whom he hath sent. That's the only work that God gives you to do. Believe the gospel 
God wants to be trusted. He has never deceived anyone. He has never made a mistake. Your best friend, the person that you confide in, who knows things about you that other people don't know, that person that you think you can trust with those secrets, that person can make a mistake. They don't know everything. They're not perfect. They can make a mistake with the best of intentions. I'm telling you tonight, God cannot make a mistake. He can be trusted, and he wants to be trusted. Without faith, it is impossible, not difficult, impossible to please God. You can't please him by doing things. You please him when you trust him, when you believe him, when you say, God, what you said here, I'm not trying to believe it. I accept it. What you said is right. God said it. I believe it. And that settles it. What did he do? It says he took them. The same hour of the night. I like this man. I like this man. this, This man didn't have a laid back, mellowed out, relaxed view of his spiritual situation. He didn't look down there and say, oh, he said they're all there. Okay, honey, t- put out the candle. Let's go back to bed. We'll deal with this tomorrow. I need my beauty rest. He went right down there. He fell down before them. He wasn't afraid to humble himself before them. So many people are afraid to ask a question. They're afraid to ask for help. And maybe you wouldn't come down here to the front and sit or raise your hand because you're afraid people will see you. are too worried. You're obsessed with what people think when you should only be thinking about your spiritual condition and the help that you could have. And the people here tonight, nobody here is going to laugh or look down their nose. We've all been there, man. I tell you, I know what it's like. The ones of us who are saved, we're only sinners saved by grace. That's all we are and all we'll ever be throughout eternity. I like this man, I say, because he did this right away. It says the same hour. He took them the same hour of the night. What hour you figure that was? Think about it. It was midnight. I think you're probably right. It was midnight when the earthquake took place. Now he's gone in and he said that to them. And they came and he brought them out and they, taught, they told him, believe in the Lord Jesus Christ. And then they explained the word of God to him. So time has gone by. See? So we're somewhere around 2 in the morning now, probably, is my guess. 1 or 2 in the morning. We're not going to split hairs over it. I don't have that many hairs left to split anyway. (laughs) He took them the same hour of the night and washed their stripes. First time anybody had done anything kind to them all that day. Washed their stripes. Who knows what else had gotten on their stripes down in the dungeon? Is there a doctor in the house? They would have said. He washed their stripes. The first application of water was to them. The second application was to him. It says, and was baptized. They only needed to be washed. He needed to be baptized. See, he and all his... Straight away, I don't only like this man, I like his household. They paid attention. They didn't just say, oh, dad, 
we're tired. You listen to you, This is your jail. We're going back to bed. They listened. The opportunity that God sent to that man that night, he sent it to his household. When God spoke to him and woke him out of his sleep, he woke the household. God was after that household. And God wants your household. And he won't be satisfied until the last one is in. God didn't make any deal with the devil before the beginning of the world. Or they did, God and the devil got together under the doctrine of predestination and said, One for you and one for me and another one for you and another one for me. And these will be mine and those will be yours. God didn't do that. Go out into the highways and the byways and compel them to come in, he says in the parable. I want my house full. He's selfish. He's stingy. He wants them all. And he won't be satisfied with you outside. You stay out. It'll only be because you want to, not because God didn't want you or God didn't choose you. It'll be your own fault. See? So he took them. He washed the stripes. He was baptized. He and all his straightway. And then, it says, when he had brought them into his house, how long did it take him to wash the stripes? And then the baptism, him and his family. How long did it take to do all of that? And then it says, when he brought them into his house, he set food before them and rejoiced, believing in God with all of his house. I like the Spanish version better here. It says, he rejoiced having believed God. Because that's really the force of it. Not believing in God. I think this man believed in God or in gods or whatever before that. But it's a different thing to believe God. You know that, don't you? To believe that he exists. See, I believe in George Washington. He was the first president of this country. I believe in George Washington. But I don't believe, I don't trust George Washington. Not even the little green one that says, In God we trust. I don't have any personal relationship with him. Believing that God exists is not the same as trusting God. Not the same. Don't miss heaven by that little distance because that's fatal. That's fatal. So he believed God with all his house. And this is why I like this man, because I see in him here in in these verses where it explains his response to the preaching of the gospel, I see evidences of conversion. Did you see them as we went along here? First thing, we saw a change of attitude, the way he spoke to them, and then the way he treated them. He washed their wounds. That was repentance. He showed sorrow and compassion toward them. His attitude, the way he thought, had changed. A person doesn't get saved without a change in attitude. You don't become a Christian. An old um, brother used to tell me he was a a flight instructor in in the Royal Air Force in the days of World War II. And he had a student. They sat front cockpit in the back cockpit. Since I was a flight instructor, I, I liked this story. And the pilot sat in the back and the student sat in the front. And he said to his student one day as they were flying along, he said, alter course 180 degrees. So they're flying along, flying along, and he's looking over the student's shoulder. And he said he looked like he was just sitting there. And they flew and they flew and they flew. And pretty soon the student reached up to the compass and he took it, it has a facing on it. 
that has all the points of the compass. He unscrewed the facing of the compass and he rotated the compass facing around 180 degrees and tightened it back and kept going. The voice comes through the intercom on the back cockpit. It says, what have you done? He said, sir, I've altered course 180 degrees. And he said, no, you haven't. You're going the same way you were before. All you did was change your point of reference. You're going the same way you were going before. You see, repentance is not changing your point of reference. It's not learning a few new words and walking around with your fingertips together and a painted smile on your face. Repentance is a turnaround. We say in Spanish, a cambio de sentido. Turn and go in the other direction. In the thoughts, in the mind, because that's where the word is born. That's what the true meaning of it is. But if a person does that, then the rest of them turns to, if the captain of the ship turns, the ship turns. Let's see. Turn, go in the other direction. Repentance. He washed their stripes. Obedience. He was baptized. That's the first command the Lord gives to the new believer. He was baptized. Well, I need to see a, a video about baptism. I need to do a course about baptism. I need to... You have any time to do any of that. It's trust, friend. It's trust, beloved. Trust. The Lord said, be baptized. Well, if the Lord said it and he doesn't make any mistakes and that's what he wants, then why do I need to scratch my theological head about it? Just do it. That's what the Lord wants. And he did it that same night. That showed that he loved the Lord because the Lord said, if you love me, keep my commandments. See? So we have repentance. We have love. We have obedience. And look here in verse 34. He brought them into his house. I think his, his neighbors would at that time have done a double take. What jailer ever took the prisoners out of the dungeon, out of the inner prison, and took them up into his house and served supper to them and sat around with his family and talked to them. This is really, in the sight of the world, a bizarre scene. That's what the gospel does. This is the change that the gospel brings. He had a new relationship. Those They might have been prisoners of the city, and he had to keep them faithfully until the morning when they were released. But... Those prisoners were his brothers now. They were his family. They were part of the family. And they're seated at the table in his house. He's giving them to eat. That's hospitality. He didn't have to take a course. He didn't have to wait until he was an elder or pastor of a church to have hospitality or a senior Christian. You can count his spiritual age in minutes and maybe hours. And he's already using. That's all hospitality is, beloved. It's just taking what you have and sharing it with someone else to help and encourage them along the way. And that's what he did. And it shows that you love them, that you like to have them at your table. You like to have, like my grandfather said once before he died, before I die, I want to have all my children's feet under my table one more time. You like to have the saints' feet under your table. You like to have their faces up where you can see them. Their feet under the table. You like to have them there. You like to talk to them. You like to be with them. You like their company. You love the brethren. By this do we know, John says in 1 John, that we have passed from death to life. That we love the brethren. 
Well, if you love them, you like to be with them where they are, not just have them in your house. When they come to meet, you like to meet. You don't say, oh, I can worship God anywhere. I'm going fishing. So you love the tackle box. And don't get me wrong. I like to wet a line as much as anybody else. I like to fish. But I have my priorities right. There's something else I like more than fishing. See. The last thing, the last evidence, joy. He rejoiced. He was not one of these people that says under pressure, okay, I'm going to trust the Lord, but I don't know what my family's going to say. Oh, oh boy, there it is. And then they hide it, and then they don't tell, and then pretty soon they flake out, and then pretty soon they disappear. This was the happiest man on the block. He knew his sins were gone. He rejoiced. I've seen some people that say they're Christians, and they have no joy. You have never seen them smile, and they concern me. They concern me. Paul and Silas rejoiced in the prison. They sang, they prayed and sang praises to God in the prison. The jailer before the night was over was rejoicing also. And my friend, if you have never rejoiced, if you don't know what it means to have joy in Christ, joy about spiritual things and the joy of the forgiveness of sin, I want to tell you, God brought you here tonight because he wants you to taste that joy. He wants you to have it. He wants you to know what it means for your sins to be forgiven. God's already voted for you. The devil voted against you. Now you get to break the tie. Now day comes, and we've got to finish fast, or day's going to come to us before we get out of here. I just want to go over this, these last uh, few verses from 35 to 40, just in about two minutes with you, because the thought here really is simple. The magistrates send messengers and say, let him go. And Paul said what he could have said before he took the beating. He could have said, I'm a Roman citizen, you can't beat me. But Paul didn't use his citizenship to escape suffering for the cause of Christ. He used it after he took the beating because now they feel intimidated. Now they feel embarrassed. And now that he's going to be leaving the city, they're going to walk on tiptoes with the new Philippian church. He's got them back on their heels now because he's got one on them. You mistreat the Philippian church, I'll tell what you did. Some cities lost their charter in the Roman Empire by mistreating Roman citizens, and they could well have been one of them. They, they beat us openly, and now they want to let us go privately? No, sir, let them come themselves and get us out. We're going to have face-to-face, up close and personal. They came, and when they came, oh, they were so nice. It says in verse 39, they besought them. That means with courtesy and respect and kindness and probably shaking in their socks, they said, we're very sorry. We, we didn't know. Please, would you mind coming out? And as In the nicest way they knew how. Well, that was good for the church, and it was good for the city of Philippi to see that those same magistrates who had torn their clothes off and commanded them to be beaten, now came and kindly took them out, admitting their error. It was good for the testimony of the church in Philippi. And that's what happened. And that's why he used it the way he did. But now, as the story ends in verse 40, there's one more thing we have to notice, and that is they left the prison. They went into Lydia's house, and it says, When they had seen 
the brethren. They've seen them. They comforted them. Who comforted who? The men with the stripes on their back, bodies full of wounds, swollen and infected probably. Men who had not slept all night. They're comforting the brethren, comforting the other Christians. That's Christianity. That's Christianity. It has something to give when a person in the world would only be looking for something to get, something to receive. It has something to give. But I can tell you someone who suffered more than they did. And his name is Jesus Christ. Cruel, scourging, nailed to the cross, condemned for you and left to die. And he died. And he rose. And he lives. And he wants to see you. He wants to call you his brother. He wants to comfort you. He does. But you have to trust him. It's your move. They comforted them and they departed. And what happened? They left the city. And what happened? Is that the end of the church in Philippi? No. You go then and you read first, you read Philippians. After reading Acts chapter 16, you read Philippians. And what do you find? Oh, the, the church went on wonderfully well there. It was a blessing. It was a testimony. You go to 2 Corinthians 8. And you read about, Paul says, and I give to you, I, I make you to know the faith of the Macedonians. That's Philippi and that area. How they impressed him by their faith. And their faith became known all throughout Christianity and is known here today. Because someone went there and preached the gospel. They didn't preach politics or sociology or psychology. They preached the gospel. Because what leaves a lasting impact on a city, on a family, on a life is the gospel of Jesus Christ. And God wants to do that in your heart tonight. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, as we bow in your presence, we thank you for this time that we've been able to be together. We thank you for the word of God. We thank you for the clarity with which the gospel message went forth. We thank you for those men who were able to give a clear answer to the question, what must I do to be saved? And we pray tonight for anyone who is here who cannot give a clear answer to that question, who cannot say that they have done what they need to and that they know that they are saved. We know that you have brought them for that very reason. And we pray that they would be like that Philippian jailer, that they would trust you, and that they will rejoice having believed God. And that tonight might be that night. Give us, O oh Lord, the strength, the faith, the Christian life of those simple Philippian believers who carried on in the absence of the apostle. Teach us that the work of God does not depend upon a gifted man, but upon faithful believers who follow the Lord, come what may. And may this church here in San Ramon be that kind of church, I pray. In Jesus' name, amen.